Hi, I'm Glenn Harper, CPA and owner of Harper & Company, CPAs Plus, and partner in Sula Consulting. In each episode, my co-host, Julie Smith, Harper & Company's practice manager and partner in Sula Consulting, and I will interview a different guest about their entrepreneurial journey. The podcast features interviews with business owners, aka entrepreneurs, who bring intriguing and entertaining clarity to the entire entrepreneurial journey, giving others confidence to build their business. Our goal is to provide actionable value to you, the entrepreneur, to help you do business or build a business. Every entrepreneur deserves to enjoy the journey. Learning from others offers valuable insight and inspiration. We want to provide insight on the why, the how, the shortcuts, and the value add that many entrepreneurs wish they would have had identified at the onset of their journey. Sit back and enjoy the journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Empowering Entrepreneurs Podcast. This is Glenn Harper. Julie Smith. What's going on, Julie? You know, I do want to talk about how beautiful the weather finally is oh, here. It's been horrible. It's been Arctic temperatures until today. Yeah, finally. Some That's sunshine. good news. Well, we got a real treat today. Uh, we've got Laura Gassner outing a fellow entrepreneur who is a keynote speaker, best-selling author, executive coach, and will gladly give you a kick in the arse while wrapping you in a hug. She is the founder and the catalyst of Limited limitless possibility. I believe that means she takes people's chaos and helps them separate the noise from the opportunity and ensures that they execute on the goals they have set. Did I say that right? Sure, why not? Sounds, like sounds pretty good. Well, thanks, Laura, for being on our show. Appreciate it. So I'm excited to be here today. There's no audience I love talking to more than entrepreneurs. They're the best. I, you know, I'm trying to, I found on your bio, you have a uh, a phonetically way of saying your name, and I'm not sure if it's the Gaelic transition or not, but it it's it says Na Sti Wu Man. Is that is that still applicable? <laughs> I am I am a proud nasty woman. All absolutely. Right. <laughs> I just want to make sure I was saying that right because it you know it, it was really long. Um, <laughs> Very funny. Uh, Phonetics good. aren't his thing. So that's not. Well, that's how I learned to read. It was it was a big deal. Um, as long as nasty women are your thing, we'll be right. okay. You know, there. Well, it depends, right? Uh, I think it's there's a positive and a negative to that. Um, well, I you know we're I detect a slight either a Texas twang or a Boston slur. I'm not sure which one you're running from or going with on your voice. What which where which one have you adopted? Because you're originally from Miami, right? I was I was born in New York City in New Brooklyn to be exact, and New I was raised in Miami. I went to University of Texas, found my way by way of Gainesville to DC, then New Haven, and now Boston. So I don't even know what my accent is, but I'm raising kids in Boston, and they don't have Boston accents. So how is that possible? Well, my husband's from Ohio, and you know Ohio okay. is like every TV show where they're supposed to have no accent. They have Ohio accents because it's sort of the middle of the country, and it's where everything comes together. So I don't know. I, uh, I, I've i been working with a voice coach for years to learn how to enunciate my words when I'm on stage. I'm not doing a good job of it right now. That but sounds horrible. Yeah, It's horrible. Yeah. It turns out that your mouth has a lot of parts to it, and it's really hard to access all of them. And it just, it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. How did, what part of Ohio is your husband from? It's from Cincinnati. Cincinnati. So there's a definite Cincinnati draw that happens there. And how did you, for sure, it's different than Cleveland for sure. It's basically Kentucky. Yeah. I didn't want to say that, but yes, it's very close to that. <laughs> I mean, you fly into Kentucky to go That's, to Cleveland, to, to go to Cincinnati. So right. yeah, we met in a bar in Washington, DC though. So, you know. So he tricked you. All right. And <laughs> Yes. How did you convince him to go to Boston? I mean, that's... Uh, he convinced me, actually. Really? Yeah. You know, uh, so I spent 20 years in executive search. And what I came to learn, in addition to a lot of other things we'll talk about today, is that it's either love or money. 
That's the only two reasons why people move. It's love or money. Sometimes it's the love of money, but it's love or money. So you either move because a significant other has a job, because you fall in love with somebody, because you have a job opportunity. There's always, it's, it's, it usually boils down to love or money. And in this case, he uh, had a job, money, and I loved him. So I moved. So match made Simple in Simple enough. Yeah, he had a move, so I moved with him. And you guys are in Boston. Have you, have you seen Jason Bourne yet, or is he not uh, show himself? Uh, you know, every once in a while, you will see Matt Damon wandering around town. You'll see Ben Affleck wandering around town. But usually, it's 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 Marky Mark. <laughs> gotcha. It's one of the Wahlberg brothers. Usually, uh, we were at, we actually went to the Celtics game uh, last Friday night, one of the Eastern Conference mm-hmm. Finals games that they lost. And uh, I think uh, Donnie Wahlberg maybe was there. There's always one of them. They always sort of pan the camera to one of them. And you're like, which Wahlberg brother is that? <laughs> Everybody just hangs out. It's the coolest thing. They know how to roll. Yeah. So when you, uh, how did you decide to pick the University of Texas? We're always trying to figure out how people decide that first step out of, out of home and they want to go do something. How did you pick Texas? I mean, why'd you want to be a Longhorn? Well, I don't know that I wanted to be a Longhorn, but um, I, as you, we mentioned, I grew up in Miami and my parents and their infinite wisdom took me to visit Michigan, Northwestern, and Texas all in February. <laughs> I got it. That's enough said. Yeah. You don't have to say and anything else to us. Yeah. We went, we went in that order. And by the time it got to Texas, I walked onto the quad and I saw all of these gorgeous young men playing Frisbee without shirts on and the beautiful Texas sun. And I was like, I think I'm going to go to school here. Yeah. So, I mean, but, but broadly speaking, I wanted to go to a big school. I wanted sort of like big sports, rah, rah, cheer for football. Um, I wanted a, uh, uh, I wanted a party scene, right? Like I wanted like somewhere that had a big social life and I was interested in politics and journalism and all three of those schools had good programs and, and both of those things. So that's sort of how I narrowed the choices, but yeah, um, I picked my job. I picked, I picked my, uh, my college because of weather. And boys, I, I think, you know, all the beautiful people seem to be in Arizona, Southern California and Austin, Texas. I don't know why yes. that is, but yes, they're not in Ohio. But <laughs> Well, uh, it's funny because my son, my older son, who who is now just finished a sophomore year at Rice in Houston, when he was applying for colleges, the first two schools he heard from were Ohio State and University of Miami. And I was like, not for nothing, but the girls are going to be locking at University of Miami. <laughs> Sorry, Buckeyes. I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for that comment, but, you know, facts, man. <laughs> well, spring break at the Oval at Ohio State, everybody gets all their pasty white skin out. It's great. And everybody's just excited to be out. So we embrace those three days a year that it's awesome. The rest of the time we're all, you know, we're, we're cavemen. Well, we feel the it. same way here in Boston. On oh, yeah. the very first day, it's nice out. You need two things. You need your shorts and you need a pair of really good sunglasses because everybody is so pale. Yeah. You're just like, oh my God. It's yeah. It's a horrible thing. So when you came out of college, I mean, at that point, were you already being an entrepreneur? You're working somewhere or did you, when did you decide? Because, you know, when you go into politics and those types of things and government service, that's a different mindset. And to go into there and then switch, when you talk a little bit about what you learned in that experience when you got out of college and did the little political thing, how did that impact you? Or did you already know that you were just using it as a stepping stone? No, I actually had no idea that I was an entrepreneur until much later. Ah. I, I, I had no idea. And, 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 you know, 
I'm 52. So when I was growing up, you know, you were, you went to college to become a doctor, a lawyer, a dental hygienist, an accountant, a teacher, like a blank, like insert a thing here. There was no, you're going to become an entrepreneur. Like maybe you'd be a small business owner if your parents were small business owners and you were inheriting them, but there was no, I'm going to invent Facebook from my dorm room feeling going on back then. So I didn't really know entrepreneur was a thing somebody could be. So I graduated early from college and I went to law school and uh, like 15 days later, and I was part of the January class. I graduated a semester early. The January class does sort of the fall semester in the spring and then the spring semester in the summer, and then you catch up. And I was 20 years old. I I couldn't even drink legally yet. And I thought my whole life I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to go to college. I was going to go to law school. I was going to become a public uh, prosecutor. I was going to put the bad guys away. I was going to become famous for that. I'd get recruited to run for Senate. I'd become the first female senator from the great state of Florida. Yay! And then I got to law school and I was like, ah, I don't want to be here. I've made a huge mistake. I, I, Most of the January class were people coming back to school, having had another career. So I was like five or seven years younger than most of them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is just organ failure right now. Like, I don't belong here. This I got to go. <laughs> So I did what most people do in those moments where they find themselves in miserable situations. I dated the world's worst boyfriend. And the world's worst boyfriend, I like to say, had had great taste in precisely two things. The first being obviously girlfriends. And the second being unknown presidential hopefuls from tiny Southern states. And one day he offered to give me a ride home from campus. And I was like, uh, sure, whatever. Um, I'm going to break up with you anyway. I'll take the ride home. And on the way home, he said, I want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. And I was like, Governor who? From where? Arkansas? Like, not a chance in hell. Like, not a chance. Governor, uh, President H, uh, George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had a 91% approval rating. The Democrats were putting up a sacrificial lamb. And I was like, sure, whatever. I walk into the office. And there's a little teeny tiny TV in the corner with then Governor Bill Clinton giving this impassioned plea about service. There's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America, which I still believe today. And he offered in as a solution service, service in exchange for college tuition, change yourself while you're changing your community. And in that moment, I was like that that needs to happen. So I broke up with a boyfriend. I dropped out of law school. I joined the campaign and I ended up in the White House, helping Bill Clinton create AmeriCorps, which now more than one and a half million young people have served in. I'm exceptionally proud of that. Fast forward, I'm dating the world's best boyfriend, who is now that husband (laughs) from Cincinnati. We've been married for 25 years. I wanted to go back on the campaign trail three years into being in the White House. And I went to go talk to my boss, who had been a lifelong entrepreneur. And he, uh, he said, look, you're too old to get back on a campaign bus and eat cold pizza and sleep on the high school gymnasium floors. At that point, I'm all of 24, which is like dog years in the political world, campaign world. But you're too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So go talk to my friend, Arnie Miller. He runs Isaacson Miller, one of the biggest search firms in the country that does specifically nonprofit university foundation advocacy work. You'll hide out for four years and then come do something big on Al Gore's presidential campaign. And I was like, great, sounds terrific. I sit down with Arnie Miller and five minutes into the conversation, Arnie, I realized that Arnie lives in Boston and I know the world's best boyfriend is about to move to Boston to get his PhD and in in economics. And I said to him, you know, I should come work for you. And he goes, you should come work for me. And I was like, great, I'll take the job. What do you do? 
Fake it till you make it. And I became a headhunter. Four years into working for him, I had this moment of rage where I realized there was a better way to do the work that would serve our clients better. And I walked into Arnie's office and I was like, there's a better way. And he was like, there's the door. And I could either keep doing things the way he wanted to do them, which was fine and was working. He was like, we love you. You're great. Keep stay here. Or I could leave and do it my way. And in that moment of rage, when I realized there was a better way, a more authentic, more a way with more integrity, with more profits for me, with less cost for our clients, I realized that I wasn't part of my client's solution, which left me in only one place, which is that I was part of their problem. And that was untenable. I couldn't stay. And so I left and I started my own firm. A few years into that, I ran into that old boss from the, the White House, who was the serial entrepreneur. And he was like, did you always know you were an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. Because I did. And in that moment, I thought to myself, is he telling me that I was just unmanageable? <laughs> or Probably. did he see something in me? So my friend Scott Stratton likes to say that entrepreneur is Latin for bad employee. But it was in that moment that I was like, oh, all of these things all were there because I I, I was an entrepreneur at heart and I was trying to sandwich myself into somebody else's way of thinking so leaving law school, leaving, you know, starting that AmeriCorps program, leaving the White House, going to that firm, realizing it was wrong, starting my own thing. Like at each moment, the the spark inside of me pushed me to move to the next thing. And looking back on it, I was always an entrepreneur, but it took several years for me to find that part of me to get there. Question for you. And those four years where you're at that firm, I... I'm I'm going to call BS because I don't think it took you four years to figure that out. I think you probably knew it a lot sooner than that, but you probably, what what was the final trigger that said, okay, I can do this better on my own? I, I know you felt that way earlier. Uh-huh. I know you did because- uh, Yeah. That. So I think I spent the first year there just figuring out what the hell I was doing. Like I was just young. I was dumb. I was naive. I just, I didn't even know how to do the work. And I was scared. I was scared of everyone around me. There was this one woman who worked there who was a vice president who was mean. She was just, she, I was, I think that she thought that I was maybe like the CEO's pet and she did not like that. And one time, so we were doing very, very high level executive search work for civic minded organizations. And one of the first reference checks I had to do, and they taught us how to do like 45 minute hour long conversations for reference checks on these candidates that we were placing because they were pretty public people was with Norman Schwarzkopf, like General Norman, Storm, Storm Norman. Norman, Norman, right? Yeah. Talk about terrifying. So I do this reference check and I write up the whole conversation. It's like a 14 page, you know, here's the question. Here's his answer, like capturing him word for word as much as I can. And I hand it to this woman. I'm like, you know, for her to proofread it. And she walks into my office 20 minutes later. and She goes, there's a dangling participle in here and walks away. That's it. Like, doesn't say good job. Doesn't say the rest is good. But just like there's this one tiny little grammatical error somewhere in this 14 page document. Goodbye. Well, first right? of all, I don't even know what a dangling participle is. I would be <laughs> I would be upset at that because I have to go look that up. Well, it's when you end a sentence on a preposition. So you say, "What are you proud of?" as opposed to, "What are the, uh, you know What is the thing about which you are most proud?" Right? What is the thing about which you are most proud is proper grammar. But what are you proudest of is how we talk. And so somewhere uh-huh. in there, I had a preposition at the end. I mean, it's just the stupidest thing ever. But that was sort of the environment there. So I already knew it felt bad. But outside of working in the White House, 
which was really my first grown up job. Like the previous job I'd had before that was like a job in high school where I was changing bedpans in a hospital, like literally, you know, like this was so, so I didn't really have any experience in one might say a normal, healthy work environment. (laughs) I didn't have, you know, that like, here's how you learn how to, how to be somebody. But as I started to get my legs under me and realize that that kind of behavior from management was a little abusive Then I started to look around and think, okay, well, if we're here to serve our clients well, should we be abusing each other by dangling participles or should we actually be helping build each other up? We should be helping build each other up. And so I started spending some time making sure that the people who were coming up behind me were getting built up in that way. And what I realized was that that behavior wasn't rewarded, right? The building other people up wasn't rewarded. In executive search, the way that you get paid is one third of the first year's cash compensation of anybody that you place in a position. So if I'm doing a search for the Kellogg Foundation, for the chief strategy officer, for example, that person's getting paid $300,000. My fee is $100,000. If I'm getting, if I'm doing a search for an executive director for a local domestic violence organization, that person is getting paid $60,000. So my fee is $20,000. $100,000 fee, $20,000 fee. Who do you think I'm incentivized to spend more time on? The big fee, right? If you're a capitalist, who, yes, absolutely. If you're a capitalist. But who do you think needs that position better? Who do you think needs that help? Who do you think will, will like, you know, the 100 people that work at the Kellogg Foundation or the three people working at the domestic violence shelter that are literally helping men and women and children in need? Who do you think needs the help more? Who do you think misses the money more? And so I just felt very uncomfortable with the fact that I was being incentivized to spend 95% of my time on the bigger and frankly easier search and the last 5% of my time on the ones who needed us most. And I just thought there needed to be a better model that allowed us to spend the same amount of time on everybody so that everybody, you know, in reaction to the complexity of their work, got the help that they needed. And by the way, if we left capacity within them at the end of the day, we could get the Kellogg Foundation to make a grant to pay for the work of the domestic violence shelter. It just seemed to me that what the problem that I was trying to solve in the world was helping people live better, more fruitful, more fulfilling lives. But that wasn't what the business model of the search firm was doing. And I just knew that if we changed the way that we incentivize behavior internally, everybody could do better by it. And when I brought this up to my boss, it, he didn't have the same drivers as me. I was 20. 526 at this point. I wasn't worried about making payroll. I wasn't married. I was just barely getting engaged. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. Like I did I didn't have the same drivers as him. Even though he wanted to make the world a better place, he had a different set of drivers. And I thought if I could build a business that allowed me not to have those drivers, we were all virtual when I started my firm. We were remote before it was COVID cool, right? It was 2002. And I built a company to 30 people that were all virtual. We didn't have to make the same nut. I didn't have the same drivers. So I could actually have much more uh, expansiveness in the way that I built the business model. And it just seemed to me that as entrepreneurs, we have options to, uh, to, to, to build prisons in which we find ourselves trapped or not. And a lot of times entrepreneurs build things because it's a way that they've seen it built before. And then they find trapped in these moments where they have to sort of keep running and doing things they don't actually care about because they're stuck because of the model they created. I think that goes back to what 
one of Julie's favorite things is, is uh, how do you get out of what? Your own way. And I think yes. one of the things, you know, that people get hung up on is, well, you know, and I tease Glenn about this all the time is, well, what did we do last year? Because that's the yeah. same thing we should continue well, to do. Well, that's just accountants. That's how we roll. Well, right. I think a lot of times that's just people and entrepreneurs, right. accountants, whoever you want to put into that bucket. And I think what that does is just breed this constant thing instead of changing or pivoting or listening, right? Because good leaders listen to what you have yes. to say and and think about what's what's your why behind that and then how can we create a solution. That just doesn't happen. Well, I think that's the exciting part about being alive in America at this time with the access to all this information, I'm telling you, 25 years ago, your boss had no clue that there's another way to build a mousetrap. They only knew what they inherited and that's what they do because that seems to work for whatever yes. reason. It pays the bills, there's stability, there's structure, all those things that- uh, Well, change just, is scary, right? Well, well, yeah, but they don't even know how to make the change. So you get somebody that's coming in there free thinking a little bit and wants to upset the apple cart. It's- that's terrifying for somebody who's done it the same way. But when you don't know anything, you're not, you don't have to be scared and you're just like, well, let's go try it this way. I mean, that's, that's the essence of optimism in, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. You know, people used to ask me, they're like, so you dropped out of law school and you joined this campaign and you were in the white house. What, what would have happened if they didn't pass the legislation? And I was like, I don't know. I was so young and naive. I just assumed it was a good idea. I was like, why wouldn't they pass the legislation? Like it just, it didn't even occur to me. It didn't even occur to me that we would fail. It was just like, okay, this is what we'll do. So I think the I think I think the like what did we do last year is a real trap and mm-hmm. I think you know it, a lot of times you couple that with this sort of what I call success hustle porn, right? Which is the like bigger, better, faster, more. Like you did 500,000 last year. You got to do a million this year. You did a million this year. This year, we're next year. We're doing 5 million, right? Like we keep, we keep upping the ante because we think that's the only way to measure success. Cause we've been told that unless you're crushing it and leaning in and 10 Xing, you're not doing anything. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're, it's, it's garbage. And what, what I think, I think one of the, 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 the great things that I was able to do as an entrepreneur, because I had a business coach who asked me these questions, not because I knew, but I happened to be lucky enough mm-hmm. to have a business coach to ask me these questions is how do you measure success? How do you measure, like, what does success look like for you? And over time, I, I really was able to boil it down to three things. I want to maximize impact. I want to maximize personal freedom and flexibility. And I want to maximize profit. I think as an entrepreneur at any given time, you can make all of your decisions based on one, maybe two of them. And if you if you're steady on those two, the third always comes. So when I founded my company, it was 2002. My youngest son was six weeks old. I wanted to maximize impact in the world, but I wanted to maximize personal freedom and flexibility. I wanted to be around for my kids. At that point, I was like, I just need to make enough to sort of keep this as a going concern until kid number one and eventually kid number two are in elementary school. And then I'll go back and do a full-time job in a big corporation. Like I just, I just need to like have this be a thing that's good enough for now. And what I realized was by by maximizing the impact I wanted to make in the world and making sure that I was maximizing my own personal freedom freedom and flexibility, I was doing really good work and good work begets more good work. So the profits eventually came. 
Over time, after 15 years of running that company and selling it to the women who helped me build it, I ended up making more money than I would have if I had stayed at that big firm all of those years. And I ended up selling it for much more than I would have if I was just trying to run it for profit all the time. And we can talk a little bit about about that if you want. But there was a moment about 10 years into the company where we brought all 30 people together. Again, we were remote. So we brought all 30 people together. We were in a beautiful like penthouse conference room in Boston overlooking the, the harbor, the haba. And we brought in a, uh, a professor from uh, Harvard, business, a business professor from Harvard. And she, as an icebreaker, asked us to all go around the room and each of us say how many people we think are the ideal number of people in this company. Like how many, what do we want this company to look like? And again, we had 30 people. So some people were like 30, some people were pretty cheeky and they were like 29, right? Some people said 150. And by the time they got to me at the end, I said, I don't think that's the right question. Like, tell me what we're trying to do here. Tell me what success looks like. And then I'll tell you how many people we need. If we want to maximize impact in the world, we need 300 people. We can do all the searches. We're going to help all the nonprofits. If we want to maximize personal freedom and flexibility, well, I don't know, maybe that's one because then I can decide what I do, when I do it, who I do it for, but I'm not worrying about everybody else's headaches, right? If we want to maximize profit, it may be that we need 17 or we need 37 or like whatever the number is where we get to the next level of all of our systems and they're all firing, but we have maximum profitability before we need to build new systems. So what are we trying to, what are we trying to solve for? And if I know what we're trying to solve for, then I can tell you what kind of company we want to build. But I think a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we do a little bit of work and we do it well. So somebody gives us more money and then we do more work and we do it well. And somebody gives us more money and suddenly we're like, oh no, I need an employee. So we bring on an employee and then we have more work and we just kind of grow in this sort of hodgepodge way that we're solving for whatever the market whim is that's coming at us. And we're not thinking strategically about where am I right now at this age and at this life stage And what am I trying to solve for? And I think that's where we get trapped because then the only thing we have to lean on is what we do last year, as opposed to what do I really want from this year and next year and five years from now? Well, I I think we, we see that a lot um, where you, you always start off, you're going to do some business. I'm going to hang up my shingle and do some business and you're doing the work, you're doing the work. And if I could just have somebody help me with this and this, you don't realize that you're on the track to building a business but you're not ready to make that choice because now all of a sudden you need more commitment, you need more time, you need more resources. So you hodgepodge it till you finally figured out that, hey, maybe I can build something great. And to yes. build something great is hard because it's a whole different mindset because you have to do what, Julie? Get out of your own way. That's it. And you got to empower, empower other people and trust them to help you do that. And nobody who is doing work, who's doing business has the time to think clearly of what their vision looks like because they're so busy grinding out the work. It's just impossible. You can't do it. So it's hard when you have those times where you can pause and reflect and think back, but which entrepreneurs have time to do that? You, you got kids, you got spouses, you got work, you got employees, you got clients. Who's got time to do that? So I think what you're basically saying is you had that moment where you're like, what am I really trying to do here? And then it clicks. Yes. Yes. I mean, I work with, you know, I, I do a lot of executive coaching. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and you know, it's, it's, I give them homework in between. And I had this one guy come to me. He was, he was interviewing me whether or not he wanted me to be his business coach. And he was like, what do you mean homework? He's like, I don't have time for homework. He's like, I am, you know, he's like, I, I ride my bike to the office. Cause that's where I get my exercise. in. he's like, I, I, I go to the office. I do my work. I ride my bike home. I'm with my family. Like I don't have any time for anything else. And I was like, well, if you're not making time, 
then how are you going to get better? Like you, we cannot get better if we don't actually. I'm, I, I, so I said to him, I'm like, look, I'm not the coach for you because you're going to get out of this, what you're going to put into it. And if what you think is we're going to talk for 45 minutes once a week, and suddenly your business is going to 10 X, like it's not, it's just not like, cause you're that I can't do, I can't want it more than you want it. That, that hamster wheel is a really hard thing to get off of. But once you take that first step off and fall out of it again, it seems like all of a sudden you see the matrix and everything slows down. You see the zeros and ones, but when you're in the hamster wheel, you can't see anything other than just the next work, the next work. And you come out here and you're like, oh, now I see how this works. Well, and don't you probably find with a lot of the people you're coaching is, you know, their heads down, like Glenn said, they're just doing business. They forgot that they've built something, but they forgot their purpose. Yes. And they forget yes. all of that. And it's like, you got to get back to that foundation. Yeah. And a lot of times what happens is because they realize they needed a person, they hire somebody, they usually make the wrong hire because often they'll hire somebody who is more senior, like they'll hire somebody who they they need to be more senior because they need that person to be interchangeable for clients with them. But really they're cheap because they're first growing a business. So they hire somebody who's too junior, gives them a more senior title. And then they have to undo all the stuff that the person thinks that they know how to do because they have the senior title, right? So they're sort of in this sort of trap place. Then they, they, they sort of start building systems. They, they, you know, they they end up uh, hiring the wrong database uh, vendor. They end up hiring the wrong marketing. And so we have to make those mistakes and then undo them. And the cost of the mistakes and the undoing and all of that, a lot of entrepreneurs are just like, I can't do it. I'm not going to make any more decisions. I'm just going to stay where I am because I don't want to make the mistake again. So then they're trapped there. So there are all these moments where they need somebody to sort of pull them out and say, what is the highest and best use of your time? Right. What is the highest and best use of your time? So if you're walking into your clients, you're doing all of the business, you're doing all of the pitching, you're writing all the proposals, you're doing all of the work. Is that the highest and best use of your time or is the highest and best use of your time thinking strategically about who the right people are on the team who can be doing some of that work to alleviate you so you can get back to the thing that you love best, which is the building and the pitching and the strategy and the growth? Uh, Often, I think that that comes from asking the wrong question. When some of those staff members come into our office, they'll come in with the problem. And the first thing we'll say is, how can I help? How can I help? They have a problem, right? We, we, you know, we have this client issue or somebody's going to fire us. The, the report didn't go well, or we're at a toilet paper in the bathroom, like whatever the thing is, how can I help? And when they, we ask, how can I help? The person then tells us how to help right? They tell us the thing that we can do. So suddenly we have a new job now. We have to change the toilet paper. We have to redo the report. We have to get on the phone with the client. Often what that does is it makes us the hero of the story. We end up solving the problem. But if we often solve our own egos need to help. And what I coach my my coaching clients to do is to not ask, how can I help anymore? But to say, what needs to happen? What needs to happen for this problem to go away? Well, what needs to happen is, you know, we 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 need to have a better system of doing these proposals so that we don't end up in this crunch time every single time. Okay, that's a different answer than we got to get this proposal done. Like, how, like what needs to happen is, you know, we have to assign you know, ordering toilet paper to just somebody on this team. Can we put that in the intern's job description? Like, what needs to happen ends up usually becoming the employee telling you what the solution long-term can be. And then you can put your CEO hat back on and actually put in place a strategy or a process that gets it off of your desk, which then gives you more time to be able to do some of that work that you need to be doing on the business instead of in the business. 
it's one of the the funniest things, you know, in like my real job on the on the side consulting with 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 clients and such is you get stuck in this whirlwind as an entrepreneur, you know, America, we're we're great. We literally we spend more than what we make and we're good at it. And we will leverage ourselves to get to that level. Yes. You can do that at a certain level if you have quote a real job because you have the regularity of income. When well, you're an entrepreneur and you don't have that regularity of income, the success of your company is directly attributable to the financial demands you put on it. If you're going to rape and pillage your company out of cash every month, you can't get there. So as you right. raise your standard of living because you're like, hey, we're making it as an entrepreneur and you take that cash out, you don't know when it's going to go because it always goes down, right? And it seems like then you never have the resources available for the tough times or to make that special hire or to bring in the consultant or the coach. And I try to train clients to live like you're just out of college, like you have no money and and you pay the government first, you know, the tax side, you said only, only take out what you need and let that thing build up a little bit. So you now have freedom, opportunity, capital. And, and that's what nobody teaches entrepreneurs. And to your point if you don't have the capital and you don't have the ability to hire somebody, you're just not because your financial demands, your old boss, like he had these needs and he didn't have the way to, he had no way to not to make the hundred thousand dollar client and do the 20,000. There's no way he could do it. Couldn't afford you're it. Right. It's a sad state of affairs, but once you learn it, it's not that bad. Yeah. You know, I, I, this business coach that I mentioned earlier, he, he asked me such a, fundamentally profound question that had changed everything that I did in my business. I sat down with him. Uh, on So this guy used to be like a direct report to Jack Welsh at, at GE. Like he was, you know, he knew business, like he knew how oh, yeah. to grow billion dollar businesses. And, and I had breakfast with him one day, just as a favor to a friend of his, he was, who, who was a mentor of mine. He had breakfast with me. And by the end of the breakfast, he was like, you know, you're interesting. I want to help you. And I was like, dude, I can't afford you. Like I can't afford you. He's like, well, I owe Dave like 10 years of favors. So like, let's just have breakfast every six weeks. And this will, I'll consider my debt washed for free. Right. This was it. I was like, Merry Christmas. Here's your, here's your, here's your manna from heaven. So the, the next, the next time we, we meet for breakfast, a couple of weeks later, I show up and I have my marketing materials. I have my budgets. I have my cash flow analysis. I have my perspectives. Like you name it, I brought all of the prettiest, fanciest, like everything I had. And he takes all the papers that I'd spread out, waiting to get like the big gold star. Like good for you. And he pushes them across the table. And he looks at me, and goes, "Laura, how do you pay yourself?" And I was like, well, "What do you mean? I mean, like I, I, I get my money from my clients, and then I." pay my people. And I, uh, put away a little bit for a rainy day. I put some into our like improving systems fund. And then like, I, you know, I give myself what's, what's left over. And he looked at me and he said, and I quote, Oh, stop being such a girl. Oh. I was like, what? what? Like, first of all, offensive. Like, what do you mean? And he said, Lori goes, what kind of lifestyle do you want? What do you want your life to look like? What does that life cost you? He said, when you come back six weeks from now, I want a list from you. I want to know what your life looks like in 10 years. I want to know not just that you're going on vacation three times a year, but are you staying in the Four Seasons or at the Motel 6? Are you driving a Mercedes or are you driving a Hyundai? Like, what does your life look like? Are you donating, you know, are you cleaning up the park on the weekends or are you creating a foundation to donate money to build a park? What is your life going to look like in five years and 10 years and 15 years? And I want granularity because I want to know what does that life cost? Then you're going to build a business that throws off that amount of money. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
oh, that is fundamentally, profoundly, completely backwards from the way that I had been doing it, which is I'm going to like bring in as much work as I can and then I'll, I'll have what's left over. And what I didn't understand at the time, which I understood later by the time we had that business professor come into our retreat, is that there are different sizes of business that throw off more or less profit. So you can have a huge business and you can have a huge revenue line, but revenue ain't profit, my friend, right? Like that is not the same thing. And I didn't understand that until I sat down and I said, wait a minute, I am kind of a princess. And if I do want to stay at the Four Seasons, if I do want to drive a Mercedes, then I need to maybe not be running a $5 million business. Maybe I need to be running a $3 million business or an $8 million business. So the $5 million business gave me only headaches, right? So I had to understand that difference. Yeah, it's like the, uh, you know, bigger's not better, better's better. And you you got to kind of first reverse engineer, what are your needs? What do you want? Where do you want to be? And then you can go build it. But everybody right. starts the opposite way. It's the darndest thing. And and I think it's that's the whole point of this podcast is to try to let entrepreneurs know that, hey, whatever way you're probably doing it, you're, you really need to rethink that. And there's yes. other options. There's resources out. There's a community that wants to help you. And that's really the whole goal of this is to help entrepreneurs go – who are struggling and beating their head against the wall every day go, oh my God, they mean there's a better way? And this is all you have to do? And it's life-changing for them. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So, it's so simple. Like when somebody yep. just kind of goes like, like they take your head and they just like turn it three degrees to the right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that's where the Grand Canyon is. I was looking at the porta-potties. <laughs> you know, like you just, it, 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 it is, the problem with entrepreneurship is that it is all too often a solo sport. And Lonely. we never get better when we play alone. So I have a question because I think team is so important and I think we kind of moved quickly over how you built a team. You built a virtual team in an environment that didn't necessarily, wasn't normal, wasn't cool, you know, cool before COVID. And then how you decided to sell your business to that team. (laughs) I mean, I think that's just got to be a wonderful story. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of a painful and difficult story also. um, Of course. These things often are. So I did the thing that all entrepreneurs do, which is that I just started cobbling together bodies, right? Like I just needed bodies and I brought on the wrong bodies, which is a great irony since my business was executive search, right? Like the cobbler's children have no shoes. I hired all the wrong people. And I hired this one person who we'll call Jane because I don't want to use her real name. And Jane was... I brought her in as a vice president, but Jane was at best like a senior associate. But Jane thought she was a vice president and she thought so much she was a vice president that she didn't listen to me when I needed to teach her how to actually be a good senior associate that was living in vice president clothes so that she could return a call to my client and I could actually go pick up my kids from school once a month. You know, like it, it, it I'd made the wrong decision. And one day uh, I was in New York City where, where she lived and she said she wanted to go have coffee with me. And Jane was doing a terrible job at this point. I was trying to figure out like, how on earth do I fire this person? I'd never fired anyone before. I didn't know how to do it. So we go out for coffee and Jane uh, leans over and she grabs hold of my forearm. Now I am not a super touchy feely person. She grabs onto my forearm and she says, and she uses exactly this tone of voice. I'm a, I'm a Gen X or she's a millennial. And she says, Laura, I'd like to teach you how to manage people of my generation. Okay. Here's what I learned in my MBA program. Okay. Okay, great. Have you heard of this thing called a compliment sandwich? 
Now I'm sitting there thinking, it's not a compliment sandwich. Like nobody goes to the deli and orders a rye bread sandwich. They order a pastrami sandwich. Like mm. it's not a compliment sandwich. It's a garbage sandwich, right? Like let's, let's, let's talk about this. So I was like, no, tell me. So she says, Laura, well, first you have to bring me in and tell me something very good about me or my work so that I am open to anything that you have to say next. Then you need to give me some criticism. And she wags her finger at me, but it needs to be constructive. Then the other side of the sandwich, you have to tell me a second nice thing about my work. So I leave wanting to put into practice the criticism you've just given me. Do you understand the compliment sandwich? Mm. And I look at her and I'm not proud of this moment. This may be the most abusive I've ever been in my entire life. This is like dangling participle level abuse. Drum roll. And I said, you see, Jane, the problem with that is that I can't think of a second nice thing to say about your work. Mic drop. The truth is I couldn't think of a first nice thing. (laughs) So I'm not proud of that moment. And as I walked out of that coffee, feeling like the worst sludge of a human being ever, by the way, she did quit like three days later. I can't believe it took her that long. I called the mentor who had actually connected me to that business coach. And I was like, I need a COO. I need help. I am so good at going out and like singing from the rooftops about the different way executive search can be done. I am so good at like selling ice to Eskimos. I am good at being a leader. I'm good at shining sunshine on my people and making them feel like a million bucks. But I am garbage, crap, horrible, toxic, hot garbage at actually developing people like managing them every single day, growing them quality, like training. Like I am not patient. I am not good at it. I need help. And he was like, well, there's this woman who's at our firm now who's about to move to Moscow with her husband because he's in the foreign service and she's going to get screwed. She's got a PhD in psychology and she's really into management. You should meet her. And a couple of weeks later we had lunch and I brought her in as my COO and partner. So I was four or five years into the the, the business when I brought her in. And that was such a huge shift because it allowed me to do the thing I love most, which is, you know, be the champion of my people, but not have to be the policeman and the teacher of my people. She hated being the champion. She was like, all that BS cheerleader crap. The good cop, bad cop, right? Yeah. Like I could not give a crap if little Johnny has an ear infection and you can't get your work done. Like my kid, like I did it, like figure it out, like figure it out. She was like, Oh, little Johnny has an ear infection. Tell me, what are you doing? Erythromycin, penicillin? How's he feeling? I'm like, ah, garbage. Kill me now. So yeah, we worked very well together. And it was really interesting because I was always like the gut punch thinker. And she was always the, the sort of brainy data, you know, and every time she started getting emotional or every time I started looking at data, we were like, so, okay, something's wrong here. We've got to figure it out. So as I, as I, you know, grew the team, it really, uh, I really came to me understanding not just what don't I do well, but what skills don't I want to develop? I actually didn't want to get better at managing people. I know how to do it. I can do it when I have to, I can sit people down and I can mentor them and I can grow them. And obviously I spend a lot of time as a coach, but I, I, I knew that the time that I spent doing that was going to take away time of the like, you know, bringing in the sunshine, which was also so valuable to the work. So I think a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we think we have to get good at everything. And the truth is we have to figure out A, what we're naturally good at, B, what we hate doing, what we have to do anyway. Yes. But then what are the things like I can't add a column of numbers to save my life. 
So when I was doing my invoices at two in the morning, I was exhausted. They were wrong. I was losing trust with my clients because they were getting invoices where the math didn't add up. Sorry, I know this hurts your accountant hearts to hear this. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. You're killing me. Yeah. This is very Finally, upsetting. Finally, one day my husband walks into my home office at two in the morning. He's like, what are you doing? He was like, how much is it going to cost you to hire someone to do this for you? And what do you charge your clients? And if that number is like $1 less than you charge your clients, come to bed and go hire a CPA tomorrow to like do all your stuff. And I did. And it was liberating. So when I grew my team, a lot of it was thinking about not just like what warm bodies do I need, but what will this alleviate from my burden and what will it allow me to do instead was sort of how I, I thought about all of that. I think and we can talk about the sale thing, but yeah, we can talk about the team first. I think, first. you know, what would you talk about it again, an entrepreneur, it's just sort of a lonely place. You feel like you can't trust anybody. You feel like you have to know it all. You feel like you have to do everything. And the fact of trying to lose control on one little thing is it's paralyzing for most people. But one of those things when you just go, Jesus, take the wheel, it's the greatest thing ever because now you've empowered and trusted someone else to do it. Either they're going to success or fail. They're probably going to do it better than you were going to do it. And if they fail, it's not going to be as bad as you were doing well, it. Well, unless so, they're Jane. Well, this is true. Well, I don't <laughs> even know. You had, yeah, to, but- you had to feel like a million bucks when you told her the line because you can't really grow as an owner till you have to fire somebody because it's such a paralyzing emotional thing for the entrepreneur owner. But once you do it, you're like, all right, this is easy now. Now I know what I need to do. And you'd rip off that Band-Aid, off you go. Well, I was lucky because she she quit. I mean, after that, she was like, I'm out of here. Like, peace out, you abusive, horrible witch of a boss. <laughs> but about seven months later, I did have to fire my first person. And I had to fire somebody because she 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 was lying. She was lying to a client. She was lying to us. She, you know, she, she, she would say that she did reference checks on a candidate that she had. And I mean, she put us in, in, in like legal trouble if things had gone wrong. And I called a friend of mine who uh, is a venture capitalist who, you know, hires and fires all day long. And I was like, dude, how do I do this? And he walked me through how to do it. And first of all, he said, when you bring them in and you say to them, how do you think it's going? The answer is usually, I think it's going pretty badly, right? Like they know, like it's usually not a surprise. If they think it's going great, they're just delusional and you're like good to be rid of them. So I, the the first time I, I ended up actually really for real firing somebody, he walked me through the whole thing and I fired this, this guy. Um, and then I threw up, I went to the bathroom and I yuked. I was just so nauseated. I was so emotionally drained by this. It was just, it was horrible because he wasn't doing well and he knew he wasn't doing well, which is why he was lying to try to cover it up. And there was like nothing we could do to help him. And I just, I was like, it's got, we, we gotta, we gotta part ways. Like this is, you're like endangering the entire company. Like this is, you know, it's, you're endangering the organizations, our clients, their, their missions. Like this is, we, we gotta go. And, and I, it, it was hard because he knew it and he was sad. It might have been easier if he was angry and he fought back, but it was like he it was just like the sadness of it. And so I called my friend back and I was like, okay, I did it. And then I puked and he was like, Welcome to the club. He's like, You're 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 not a real entrepreneur until you puked. <laughs> well, I think to that point, it's one of those things where you know, you as an entrepreneur have to recognize and realize it's not about you anymore. It's no, about it's your organization. Like- your company. When he made a bad decision, when he was lying to our clients, if we had placed 
CEOs and executive directors, C-suite people in these nonprofits, these universities, these foundations who had criminal records or who were incompetent, like those were front page news stories for these organizations. It would damage the organization. It would ruin their fundraising. It would it would eviscerate their board. There'd be legal action. Like the very people who are being helped by these organizations would lose a lifeline. Like it, it, it's not just, oh, sorry, our stock only went up 5% and not 6%. Like that matters also. But like I, we took this work very seriously because there were literally lives at stake if we did the work wrong. And so I, I knew that I had not just a fiduciary responsibility to my company, but also I had just a moral responsibility to, to, to the planet. Well, but see, most entrepreneurs, like you, you were able to see that clarity that this has to happen. Most entrepreneurs, they don't, they think it's about them and they mm-hmm. can't do that because they still think it's about them. It's not about the company. If the, if the company doesn't exist, nobody exists. And we, and, and we have to change that mindset as an entrepreneur that it's not what's best for Glenn. It's not what's best for Julie. It's not what's best for Laura. It's what's best for the company that we're part of. And if you're not helping, you're hurting. And that affects everybody and got to go. Right. I mean, you owe it to all the other staff members that you have. Like you owe it to, you know, I, I, when I ran my company, we we actually had a, um, I, I sort of wrote a manifesto like the, the when I started, I wrote this manifesto and I actually, I actually wrote it on the beach in St. Martin. Um, it was like the moment where this all sort of came. So it was sort of known in the company as the St. Martin manifesto. And it was just like, this is what we believe as a company. Like, this is what quality means. This is why we do our work. This is why we take it seriously. This is the price of getting it wrong. Like we need to do it right. Not because we need to do it right, because getting it wrong is, is, is a, is a real, like the damage is real. And so we could point to that. It was very clear. We also had sort of like quote unquote citizenship guidelines in our company. I did not, I, I would not brook the bullshit of this person selling something so that they could get a, a sales commission by screwing their, you know, their, mm-hmm. their colleague. We, we gave sales commissions. Like if, if we did well, everybody did well. If I sold something and then you did the work and then they hired us for more work, you got the sales commission because it then became your relationship because you did the good work that brought in the next work. And so we had a, 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 a very, very uh, specifically outlined sort of guidelines for how we operate as a culture within our company. And at the end of the year, we would give bonuses both for performance, but also citizenship. Like how good of a citizenship were you? How much did you uphold the community or were you just a bystander of our community? So I always thought it was very important to make sure that we were incentivizing the right behavior inside because the right behavior inside is part and parcel of what begets good work on the outside. And so in order to, you know, it became very clear for me, if this person wasn't upholding our community guidelines, they got to get gone because even if they are our best salesperson, and I had to fire our best salesperson once, like that was a tough, tough decision to make. And this business coach helped me. He was like, look, she might be bringing in a ton of revenue, but you Toxic. are losing culture. You yeah. are losing clients. You are losing great employees. You are losing your own sanity. Like, is it worth it? And again, like we could be an $8 million company with her. We could be a $7 million company without her, but we were making more money because people were working harder and happier. So, you know, we had to figure that out. It was very clear. She was not upholding those guidelines and we would point to them and we'd be like, come on, like, let's, let's go. I think entrepreneurs really have to think about not just, you know, am I building this company? 
but what kind of a community am I building around me? And I owe it to all the people in that community to make sure that these guidelines fit. And everyone's guidelines are going to be different, right? Like your guidelines might be like everybody, you know, be a shark and kill for yourself. Fine. Like I got no judgment, but I think we have to decide because then everybody knows the playbook. It's so hard as an entrepreneur, what goes on in our heads of what we're responsible to and for. And again, non-entrepreneur people cannot even comprehend, begin to comprehend what that burden is. And, but we don't share it. We don't communicate it to our team because we don't think they can handle it. So you got to figure out who it needs to know what and how, so they can somehow relate to where you're coming from. Because if not, you're again, you're even more isolated. And how do you get anything done? You know, it's tough because as you said, you know, leaders are expected to talk a lot. And the closer you get to the head of the table, the more you're expected to talk. And the more expected to talk, the more you're expected to have the answers. And I think a lot of times entrepreneurs feel like we have to have all the answers all the time. And we don't. Like we are making it up as we go along. And until we say to people, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Let's figure that out. I used to like I have a um I have a like a 10-page Google document called How to Manage Your LGO. My name's Laura Gassner-Otting. My friends call me LGO. How to Manage Your LGO. And it has, this comes from my political days, right? Like you have like a whole document about how you manage the principle. I have in there very specifically, this is the seat I like to sit on the airplane. If that's like, if, if, if the aisle seat is not available, I'll take a window. Do not put me in the bulkhead. I don't even want an aisle on the bulkhead. Like it is very, very clear how I want things in my calendar, how I want my time to be managed, how like when I will take certain pick your brain calls, what time of day I want to make sure that I've, those are my like, uh, uh, those are my protected creative, you know, blocks of time, like all of that stuff. Um, but in there also are certain things like, don't ever lie to me. Like if you lie to me, I'm 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 gonna know, right? I, there are things like uh, I've never heard a better I've never heard a better thing come out of anybody who's worked for me's mouth. And I think I have a better idea, right? Like don't just come to me with the problem. Like I'll take the problem if that's all you got. But if you also have a solution, even if it's a flyer, like let's give it a try. But if you come to me and you say, Laura, I know we've been doing it this way for all this time. And we're going to plan for next year based on what did we do last year? And you say, I think I have a better idea. It might be amazing. It might be terrible. But there's nothing that I love hearing more that I think I have a better idea. And I think as entrepreneurs, we can't just say, yeah, I would love for my people to do it. We have to signal that we're open to it. We have to um, we have to be actually like verbally open to it. Alan Mulally, who saved Ford Motor Company, one of the first things that he did when he got there is he got rid of all of the side load, uh, all the side load uh, uh, parts where, you know, each division met with themselves and progress could be, could be, could be, you know, lack of progress could be hidden, mistakes could be hidden, uh, people's egos could be inflated. He brought them all into the Thunderbird room in Detroit, the historic Thunderbird room, and he put up all of their tasks on the wall. And he said, I'm going to give you three stickers, green, yellow, and red. Code them. Green means everything is great. Yellow means I'm having a little trouble. And red is like danger, Will Robinson. Like we we're having trouble here. I need help. And for the first meeting, everything was green. Next meeting, everything's green. Third meeting, everything's green. And he was like, we're losing $17 billion a, a year. Like everything cannot be all green. And one of the executives raises his hand and is like, um, I, have, I have a problem. And Alan said to me, I interviewed him for, for my most recent book. He, he, hired, he said to me, because I was so excited. I was so excited. I knew exactly what I needed to do. I needed to be like, yes, tell us your problem. I needed to love on him, like overboard love on him get his problem solved. And in the next meeting, I needed to move his chair right next to me 
so that everybody could see that my Ford was going to be a Ford of transparency and openness and teamwork. And wouldn't you know it, the next meeting, that board was a sea of yellows <laughs> and reds because he had to not just say, this is what I think as a leader. He had to signal it. He had to act on it. He had to be fully involved in making sure that everybody knew that what he said was what he meant so that that, re- that, that behavior wasn't just okay. It was actually rewarded. He definitely cultivated that culture by showing that action, right? Instead of just letting it all go. I mean, lots of lots of leaders will say, I want people to come to me with different ideas. And then they, they don't, don't ever do anything when people come to them or they ignore them or they tell them they're wrong. Right. So we have to make sure like that we're doing the thing that we're saying and that we're going overboard. One like something that surprised me so much when I ran this virtual search firm is how much over communication everybody needed. Like people needed so much more structure than I thought. They needed so much more communication. And, you know, this business coach said to me one day, I was like, I don't understand. Like they're all working in this entrepreneurial place. Like, why aren't they more entrepreneurial? Why don't they, why aren't they self-starters? Like, why don't they like take the initiative? And he said, Lori goes, if they were entrepreneurs, they wouldn't be working for you. They'd be doing their own thing. Just because they're working in an entrepreneurial startup, magical mystery tour. We don't know what's going to happen next month kind of environment doesn't make them entrepreneurs. They're still getting a paycheck. You're the entrepreneur. Don't confuse entrepreneurship, like an entrepreneurial employee as an entrepreneur. Mm, That was a big lesson. So one of the things we always like to talk about as as we're getting to the probably the end of this thing is how, as we're running out of time, which sucks, we could talk for days on this. This has been great. Um, You know, if you can look back and go, man, if I'd have just known that, then who knows what could have happened? Not judging good or bad or whatever, but just like, wow, if I could have known that little nugget sometime prior to today, how would that would have impacted your career, your businesses, your lifestyle, everything? What is that thing you're like, man, I wish you'd have known that? It's not a regret thing, but just what would I, you wish you'd have known? Oh, yeah. I wish I would have known that we create the speed of our own hamster wheel. So when I go in and I pitch a client, the client says, great, we want to hire you. And I say, terrific, I'll have a proposal on your desk or I'll have a contract on your desk by the afternoon. I've now created an expectation. If I say, fantastic, we'll have a contract on your desk tomorrow morning. That's a different expectation. Fantastic. I'll get you a contract by the end of the week. We're so looking forward to working with you. They're not going to say, oh, the end of the week. No, thank you. Like it's done. But what I was doing was I was speeding up the the, the treadmill, the, the hamster wheel for no reason other than the fact that I felt like I could, had to continue to overperform, 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 even when the deal was done. And once I did that, I'll get you the contract this afternoon. That meant every single other interaction with the client, they were expecting the same speed of response which I wanted to do. But if I said, I'll get it to you by the end of the week. And then I got to them by the afternoon, they were thrilled. I'd over, I'd overperformed. I realized that I was the one because I felt like I had to keep showing up in this over delivery way that I was speeding up the treadmill unnecessarily. And once I started slowing it down a little bit and realizing that it didn't actually make any difference and nobody cared. And by the way, the contract that you get to them by the afternoon, they don't sign till the end of the week anyway. That was so liberating. It's like that uh, under promise and over over deliver. It yes. seems to work most of the time. Well, and I think once you as the leader decide that that's your speed, that gives, 
I don't want to say grace to your whole team as to, this is how we handle it. This is the expectation we set. It's okay to communicate it. It doesn't mean it's, you know, this 24-hour turnaround driven society. It's okay. And I think once you give that grace and you've decided to implement that, your team is like, ah, oh, yes. Okay, exactly. we can perform at this level. Like, yes, you know, and you just, you can watch a team just totally take that down. So I give you so much kudos for that. Yeah. Well, and it's like, look, I mean, the speed of business is fast. Like we need mm-hmm. to return the calls. We need to like, mm-hmm. you you got to go. You got to go quickly. But once the deal is done, like we don't have to keep speeding up. You can stay at the speed you've been at. And what that allowed my team to do was actually like write the better contract, make sure we didn't have some other client's name and the thing, the copy and paste and the template that we had again. Right. So it allowed us to make fewer mistakes. So we were still fast. We just weren't unnecessarily speeding up every single time faster, 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 faster. So we have one trick question that we love to ask at the end. Okay. What is your end game? <laughs> what is my end game? Um, like uh, my, yeah, it's interesting. I was asked this question yesterday, not this question, but I was asked a question about whether or not I'm tying my success to outcomes. Like Wall Street Journal, best-selling author, you know, are you happy because of? And what I said was my end game is that I want to build a platform and a followership as an author and as a speaker and as a coach, where if I on my massive social media or media platform say, I care about this issue, donate money to this cause or go vote or get off your ass and go, you know, do this thing. I want be able to, I want to be able to move people. Like I want to have enough people that listen to me that I can influence that I can move people to do something that I think helps the world as a as a better place. And the Wall Street Journal best-selling author from my last book that just came out isn't my goal. That's not my end game. That was the end game for book launch, but it was a micro goal that gets me to a place where if I have that, then I could build more of the thing I want to get to so that eventually I can have the followership that allows me to create movements. And so I love your answer because the trick is, is there's no end game usually there's for an no entrepreneur. End game. It never Your stops. end game was the book for a moment in time, right? And that's just defines that moment in time, but it's going to continue to process. And I know that no one can see her hand movements as you're listening, but it was in an upward motion, rolling upward motion. And so it, it depicted the, the answer perfectly. Again. Well, we didn't even talk about my book, actually, which is called Wonder Hell. And I would encourage your listeners to go check out my talk that's on TED.com. It's got like a million and a half views already. It's on Wonder Hell and it's why success doesn't equal happiness. And it's because on the other side of this wonder hell is just the next one and the next one and the next one. So it's all like the trick question is wonder hell. So yeah, welcome to wonder hell. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes so everyone can go go yes. find it. Well, Laura, it was an absolute joy talking. I could have talked to you for another six months on this. We're having, having a hoot here. <laughs> Thank so you, Glenn. I, Thank you, Julie. I really appreciate you being on the show. But can you give um, our listeners a plug um, as to where they could find you? Um, obviously, we'll we'll note the book in the in the show notes as well. So yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, my name is Laura Gassner Odding. Uh, the book is Wonder Hell, Why Success Doesn't Feel Like It Should and What to Do About It. All my good friends call me LGO. So you can find me on all the socials at Hey LGO. And if you want to check out the book, it's at wonderhell.com. There's even a fun little quiz there if you want to figure out sort of where you are stuck and how to get unstuck. The quiz at wonderhell.com is the thing you should take. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being with us, Julie. Another great show. Yes, thank you. You were a, a fabulous guest, and I'm sure there was many nuggets that our listeners oh. could take and learn from and be able to pivot. 
Oh, the billions well, of listeners. Thank you so much. The billions of listeners on this podcast are going to be impactful. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so thanks again. We'll see you thank later. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. At Harper & Company CPA Plus, we just don't care about the numbers. We care about helping you tap into the greatness of your entrepreneurial journey. You deserve a partner who has helped hundreds of businesses go from paying the bills to building the business and lifestyle of their dreams. Go to our website and download our free guide entitled Entrepreneurial Success Formula, How to Avoid Managing Your Business from Your Bank Account. The link is in this episode's show notes.